Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. There's only four days to go, ladies and gentlemen. Four days until we emerge out of the tunnel of darkness. Four days until life will begin to return to normal. Just think of all the things that you'll be able to do. You can go to the gym, you can get yourself a haircut, you can go to the actual shops and buy actual things that you put in an actual bag and take home. You don't have to get it delivered to you. And perhaps best of all, you can go out for a drink with your friends and you can even have dinner out as well. I, of course, will be doing all of those things, uh, apart from possibly getting a haircut. So I'm starting to quite like the fact that my hair uh, looks completely and utterly ridiculous. It might seem like I'm making too much of what should be considered to be normal activity, but when you consider that none of us have been doing any of it since December the 18th, it is actually quite a big deal. And I want you to join me in celebrating it because it's, guess what, 114 days since we last did anything like that. This morning, we've got a great many guests to talk to about a great many things, starting off with Alan Mendoza from the Henry Jackson Society on the astonishing news that came out of Forbes magazine that our 40 new billionaires created by the COVID pandemic, 14 of them, one four, are from China. What a coincidence. 0344 499 1000. What a great idea, by the way, that Julie Hartley Brewer just had. Why don't we actually impose some kind of COVID tax on anybody uh, who allows a virus as deadly as the coronavirus, as COVID-19, to escape from their borders and infect the rest of the world. Why can't we do that? I'll be asking Alan that very question. Coming up, we'll be finding out just what all these stories are around the AstraZeneca vaccine and what they're doing to public confidence. We'll be exploring the latest news on the vaccine passports idea, which seems to be losing credibility by the day. And we'll be investigating the terrible story of a father who went to the aid of his 11-year-old son who was being bullied by local thugs and is now lying in a coma in hospital after being beaten up to within an inch of his life by those same thugs. When are the police going to get to grips with antisocial behaviour in our country? 0344 499 Helen Dale joins us as well with her take on yesterday's Extinction Rebellion pantomime when they broke the windows of Barclays Bank at Canary Wharf. We've also got impressionist Lewis McLeod coming on with his take on the big political personalities. And Helen and Nicola joins us as well with some April drinks ideas ahead of the Grand National Weekend. Yes, that's on as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us, without further ado, go straight to Dr. Alan Mendoza, founder and executive director at the Henry Jackson Society. Alan, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I suppose I shouldn't be too surprised by what I saw when I read Forbes magazine yesterday, but I was quite taken aback, not only at the numbers of people who have made a fortune out of coronavirus in general, the pandemic, and the obvious ones, of course, the, the people that came up with vaccines, the people that own medical companies and that kind of thing, but 14 out of the new billionaires uh, in the world, 40 of them, uh, are in China. And I mean, I guess, as I say, I shouldn't be that surprised, but it's, it's taken me aback slightly. Well, yeah, you're not surprised because, of course, if you think about it, where was the PPE, where was the equipment that we needed in the middle of this pandemic made? A lot of it was made in China. Right. So obviously, um, the, you know, 14 of those people have done very well from this crisis, which, of course, um, you know, originally resulted, as you stated a little earlier, because China allowed it to escape from their borders. So, you know, I don't blame the people themselves. They've been, you know, just making equipment. But of course, they're in the middle of a pandemic that needn't have been a pandemic. Well, quite. And even as we look now at the tests that we're being asked to do two a week of, they're all made in China as well. 
Yeah, well, this comes down to supply chains, doesn't it? It comes down to where are the critical areas of infrastructure of other um, national security-related, health-related equipment that you need as a country? Where is it produced? And, you know, we did a report last year looking into, you know, how much of a monopoly or stranglehold China had on lots of different areas of our economy, America's economy, Australia, Canada, New New Zealand's economy. It doesn't make for pleasant reading. No, it doesn't. And we've spoken many times, Alan, about the sort of the creeping um, power that China is exerting in places that we don't even know. I mean, has China sort of transformed, would you say, in the past year? Because as most of the world has suffered, China appears to, one, have got itself through this pandemic, doesn't seem to have really had to deal with any scrutiny much from the World Health Organization or those investigating what exactly happened in Wuhan. Um, And they apparently have emerged even wealthier and more powerful than ever. Well, yeah, of course, uh, because they came out of this fairly early, as you stated. Mm. They've uh, been able to contain it, or at least uh, they claim they've contained it. As you know, Mike, nobody quite knows the truth of what's gone on in China and Mm. what indeed is happening because the the stats aren't uh, believable. But nonetheless, what it looks like is they recovered industrial productions back up, GDPs back up. And of course, it is the people who recover first, um, you know, post the pandemic, who stand to benefit from essentially uh, getting out there economically and increasing their market shares. And yes, I think over the last year, you will have seen this extraordinary paradox that the country where this started, which isn't collaborating with the World Health Organization even in helping to determine how exactly it started, will end up coming out as the sort of, you know, having done the best out of it from an economic perspective. And is there any uh, room anywhere or is there any appetite anywhere for a kind of windfall tax, if you like, of some kind? I mean, I don't know quite how it would be um, proposed, how it would be um, carried out, but there seems to be a good argument for it. Well, yeah, I mean, there are, there are numerous uh, legal examples. I mean, it, it's actually just a, a year ago uh, yesterday that we published our first coronavirus compensation paper looking at the mechanisms that could be used to exact that kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, reparations, if you want to call it that, from China for, mm. for their for their bad behaviour and allowing this to stem out. There are perfectly possible to do this on a country basis, on a civil a court basis. There are ways that people could go around to getting it. But you're right to ask this about the appetite. Why is it that our politicians, and not just our politicians, are so reluctant to point the finger of blame where it started? Yeah. Why are they so keen to go through this whole crisis and not say to the British people who've suffered so much, one of the reasons, not all, but one of the reasons this happened was because the Chinese lied about it starting, about what they knew about it. And as a result, what could have been contained domestically turned into an international and global pandemic that's affected you? Mm. Shouldn't we have answers to those questions at the very least? Yeah, and I think Boris Johnson's sort of approach to China seems a little bit muddled at the moment because we saw him talking a few weeks ago about having to make sure that we still maintain diplomatic ties and trading ties, but at the same time, uh, we must be more careful about uh, telling them off when they do things with the Ouija population, for example. Well, it, it is a schizophrenic approach. Um, we, we all understand the economics behind it. We all get that we want Chinese investment and we want you know the money to, to come in in that way. But what we fail to appreciate or what we have seen over the last year time and time again, but then forget it seems, is that that money always has strings attached. There are you know, questions about what it is that the companies who are investing in the UK are actually up to. There are, you know, there are questions about um, at the Chinese end, you know, some of the supply procedures for slavery, issues like this, the genocide matters that get involved in our supply chains for, for clothing mm. and things like this. There, all these questions remain you know, largely unanswered and it, it just won't do to have this sort of two-faced approach. And it becomes particularly farcical when you have examples like the Chinese sanctioning British members of parliament uh, for you know, raising the truth yeah. about what's going on about human rights in Xinjiang. Now, how do you have a partner who then sanctions your own members of parliament. Yeah, and nothing really much was said about that. You know, I mean, Boris Johnson, I think, about three days after the story broke, said something about how he stood fair, you know, full square behind those people who had been sanctioned by China. But he didn't really go much further than that. Well, no, they had a lovely photo shoot in, you know, at number 10 Downing Street. They stood together, you know, in, in resolute uh, opposition. But, you know, you'd have thought that that would have led to a downgrading of diplomatic relations, a complaint, nothing of that kind has happened. 
And it, again, it shows the Chinese that they can get away with this kind of behavior if there's going to be no comeback. Mm. And it's not just us. I, you know, I want to make it clear what needs to happen for, for the Chinese to be faced down comprehensively, the Chinese Communist Party to be faced down, is for there to be a collective approach across Western countries. That, by the way, is what happened with those sanctions. You had the US, the UK and the EU all coming together to apply human rights sanctions on, on the Chinese. But it should have, you know, we should have had a, a follow up process as well to say to the Chinese, right, you want to sanction more bar people, we've got plenty more of yours mm. that we're going to keep on sanctioning and off we go. Yeah. And what exactly is the setup now in uh, Chinese society? Because with all these billionaires, uh, one of whom apparently became wealthy practically overnight, uh, Li Wangquan, uh, president of Chinese medical products manufacturer, Winner Medical, because they made all the masks and, uh, and PPE that we ended up bringing in uh, from that part of the world. I mean, is there a kind of three-tier society now in China? Because I'm obviously, like most people, completely ignorant of what actually goes on within the country. Well, look, you've got the Communist Party that controls everything. I and mean, that, that, in reality, is what happens in China. Uh, that, you know, and you've got to separate that, of course, from the Chinese people. But then you've got to, of course, then work out the people who work within the system, essentially, mm. who may not be communists themselves, but are playing by those rules. Most of these billionaires are going to be people who are obviously, um, you know, have gained from the system. They're part of the system. They have to play by its rules, of course, because we've seen what happens, by the way, to those, uh, you know, Chinese billionaires even uh, who, you know, sometimes speak out. People like Jack Ma, you saw he disappeared for a right. long time and then lots of questions about what's going to about his future as a result so it shows you you've got a totalitarian state it's a state that crushes dissent it, it means that you know people have to go along with what it does but i suppose the question you know the long-term question on this is for how long can china maintain that policy how long will this you know coercive control work when it is becoming a richer country and you're seeing a bigger middle class a bigger set of people who who understand that the world doesn't have to run the way that the Chinese Communist mm. Party runs it. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because with that, in, you know, sort of onset of capitalism, if you like, uh, as you say, there will be a burgeoning middle class. and It will be the middle class that ends up making the difference. Whereas we, on the other hand, are listening to uh, organisations about kind of, you know, vaccine passports and listening to uh, evidence from people who have been to China who talk about the surveillance society that they all live under, uh, one which apparently this government would like us to copy. Well, I... <laughs> I know where you're going with that, Mike. I think it's slightly different. To the level of surveillance in China is extraordinary. I mean, you know, you can't breathe without someone, you know, working out what's actually going on in, in that in that kind of way. Yeah, no, we, spoke, right to, to we spoke to Neil Oliver yesterday, who was on a, a filming trip there, and he said basically everything was done on an app. Uh, they had their handlers who yep. would take them to a restaurant. They would book it on the app. Uh, they would pay for it on the app. No money was ever exchanged. Everybody knew what was being ordered. Everybody knew who was eating what. Everybody knew what everybody was drinking, where they went, where they were going next. I mean, you know, that is a kind of um, app that is being talked about here. I'm not suggesting that, 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 you know, the Conservatives want to turn this into communist China. But there is that kind of fear among some people. Well... Obviously, there are civil liberties questions when it comes down to, you know, what you're doing with um, pandemic related responses. I think the big difference, of course, is that the Chinese Communist Party um, was employing these systems a long time before the pandemic and will be employing them a long time after the pandemic as well, because its whole rationale is control. And the degree of control is extraordinary. I mean, if you say the wrong thing on a social media platform, on a messaging service, you can have your benefits stripped. You can have all sorts of things taken away from you in China. That's a level of control. Yeah. Now, look, no this one is this social credit. This here. is this social credit system they're talking about, right? Correct. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. Mm. So they are literally thought policing you. They are literally saying that is how you operate. And again, you know, for for all that there is a legitimate debate to be had about civil liberties in this country. Nobody would suggest that the British government is going down that kind of path. Okay? No, they're not. But, it but does, I mean, what, what, it, what it does show you, though, and this is important, it does show you that technology can be used for good or for bad. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, but also, um, you know, organisations like Big Brother Watch, who are thankfully looking out for us in this regard, would say that some of the technology that would have to be used for, say, a vaccine passport, if it was to be the digital kind that, that the government have talked about, they would be collecting that kind of data on individuals. Now, what they do with that data obviously would be different, presumably, to what China would do with it, but they'd still be collecting it. Well, I think that's a question government has to answer. It has to answer, look, what happens to that data? Where is it stored? How long do we keep it for? Issues like that. Yeah. I mean, I do take all this with a pinch of salt in the sense that people who use Facebook, Google, Instagram, all these things, basically, are giving away so much data on a mm. daily basis. They may not know they're doing it, but they really are. All the things you've just said 
I can assure you, Facebook and Google, if you use their platforms, know where you've been shopping, what you've been doing, where you'll be drinking next week. They'll know all of that as well. Yeah. Oh, there's no question. I mean, I'm constantly baffled, although I shouldn't be baffled at all, uh, by having had a conversation. And this is, by the way, with all the microphones on all my devices switched off, I can be talking to somebody about something. Next time I go on Facebook, there's an advert for something that I've been talking about. I still haven't worked out how they're doing that. It's it's shocking, isn't it? But yeah. it, it just tells you that you don't even need to have your microphone. You know, no. they, they are listening somehow. Right. Remember what the Amazon guy said at one point about um, Alexa? He wouldn't use Alexa in his house because Alexa just picks up everything. Yeah, in that sort of way. And it I mean, we're told to be careful. Of. We're told that very possibly, you know, smart TVs do the same thing, even when they're in standby mode. So people say, well, you must pull out the plug, otherwise. We're... I mean, part of me doesn't care about that. But what I do worry about is these latest conversations which are being had. And I think actually they will fall down eventually. I don't think we'll see a vaccine passport. And I think we're seeing more and more the government moving away from that. But I think there are those who would like to do it. But if it means that you can't go somewhere as a result of whatever medical condition you might have, and then when insurance companies start asking questions about what preconditions you may have before we give you life insurance, you can all start to get a little bit interesting. Well, I hope, look, you're asking the questions that I hope our members of parliament will be asking when it comes into well, like discussion so. debate about this. Look, I think some of them are already doing it and saying, look, we understand the need to open up the country, we've got to, but we've got to balance that with the, with the idea of, uh, you know, of, of the data collection side of this. And is this absolutely necessary? And some of the, you know, some of the exceptions you've just mentioned about people who can't have the vaccine, there can't be a system, basically, can there, where, where there is a two-tier society. No. If you choose not to take the vaccine uh, because you don't want to take it, that's one thing. But if you can't take it, that's clearly another. Um, and there's a, you know, there's there, there's got to be a way around that. Now, mm. That has to be debated, discussed. It's great you've raised it today. I think, you know, we need to have answers on that question as to how you get by that and what that process is. And also, you know, let's be honest, nobody wants this to be even remotely permanent, even if we get it at all. The idea that this could be the future, the future normal, is a terrifying prospect. The idea that things are in February 20. Uh, 20 where you know you could go without any kind of idea anywhere and suddenly you have to carry id it, it's a concern obviously yeah so i think the government has to answer questions about how long does it intend to do this for what is the situation here and then and then we have to ask also what's the position of the other parties on this are they happy to go along with it well that's right and also i think we have to look beyond covid i suppose and i'm assuming that china is is doing that because my next question to you was going to be where does china see itself you know in 10 years time because clearly they're on the march if you like i mean it was no accident that that uh, um, a freighter that, that ran aground in the Suez Canal uh, was coming from China. Um, you know, they're all over the world. They're in South America in a big way. They're in Africa massively, um, you know, taking hold of all the minerals out of the ground. They're building infrastructure in the Southeast Pacific. I mean, what do you think China sees itself as in 10 years? Well, China would see itself in a even greater economic and strategic position than it is today. Its whole purpose, I mean, this is where they have really stolen a march on the world. Their plan has been in place for 20 to 30 years, Mike, already. We've mm. been going, oh, this is a benign trading partner, economic interest. It's not. It's about securing Chinese greatness uh, for logical reasons from their part. I mean, obviously, who wouldn't want to be a great country? That's you know, the, the, the way it works. But they have laid a careful plan for how using economic means they can actually generate that power and that prestige around mm. the world. Yeah. That plan is in full flow. It's happening right now, as you pointed out. And it's only going to intensify unless we are alive to that reality and, and choose to stop it and say, look, of course we want to trade. There's no harm in that. But we're not going to allow our economies to be under your control in any way, shape or form, because, frankly, we just don't know uh, what your true intentions are. Yeah. I mean, many years ago, I think under the Obama administration, it was said that China owned most of America's debt. And it was America that kind of was in hock, if you like, to China, who had bought all the bonds that basically were keeping America going. Would that then be the case for the rest of the world now? Because everything, obviously the amount of money that we're now borrowing as a country um, is prodigious. I don't think anybody could even put a number on it so big. But is it, are we in hock to China financially? Well, I think, you know, the way the financial markets work, it's always you know, dangerous to say, oh, you're in hock to this country or that country. You know, the reality is the global financial system only works because everyone is interdependent on it. If one country were to start pulling out the debt stops in various ways, I think you would find there were, there were ways that country was, you know, is itself affected by it. I mean, don't forget China itself does rely upon trade flows. It does rely upon those activities as well. So there, there is always that, the, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, you turn on one, there's a whole chain reaction 
recession that occurs. And we learned, did we not, even in the financial crisis of 2008, that even when one bank failed, uh, one big bank failed, it mm. had a ripple effect that affected the entire economy. So, you know, I, I, you know, I don't see the debt issue as being a, a major, major problem in terms of global uh, politics. What I think we, we do, though, have to establish quite clearly are the red lines beyond which we want to make sure we have control in our economies. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Dr. Ella Mendoza, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Founder and executive director at the Henry Jackson Society, talking about the power uh, and the wealth of China now, uh, which really is becoming so huge that really nobody can take them on. Not the United States of America, not the European Union, certainly not um, the um, former USSR, which is now just Russia. There is no other country in the entire world that is as powerful or as influential as China. To have 14 new billionaires just based out of what happened during the COVID pandemic of the last year is quite extraordinary. Here's another one for you. The founder and chairman of Intco Medical, Louis Fangi, uh, he uh, manufactures PPE, including gloves, face masks, isolation gowns, hand sanitizer, all of which have become vital resources to fighting the spread of coronavirus, of course. Uh, Wan Liping, who's actually Canadian-based but has a stake in Shenzhen Kangtai Biological Products, he received a 24% stake in the vaccination maker um, and suddenly now another billionaire on the horizon. It's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, I know, but it's still an important story, I think, to bring to you because it shows you that out of this terrible carnage of the last year where many people have lost their loved ones, they've lost their livelihoods, they've lost their jobs, they've lost their businesses, they've lost their houses, a lot of people are getting very rich indeed. And I think that is a problem. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. LaDonna Harvey joins us later on. We've got the Thursday Club coming up as well, of course. Uh, Baroness Kate Hoey uh, will be here as well, talking about the situation in Northern Ireland. Uh, that's a little bit later on the show as well. Right now, though, let's talk to Dr. Andrew Preston, microbiologist at the University of Bath, because yesterday there was a press conference just after we finished here at uh, Talk Radio at one o'clock, uh, and it was all about AstraZeneca and the vaccine and the problems uh, with a very rare form of blood clotting that's been going on. Now, to my mind, this story seems to have taken on much larger proportions than it probably should. It's a difficult situation for AstraZeneca, a difficult situation for the government, because in any way, uh, shape or form, by telling people that there could be a problem, people are going to become slightly less confident about getting it, I would think. Let's ask Dr. Andrew uh, what he makes of it. Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mark. It's a strange uh, situation, this, isn't it? Because it's it's generally accepted that the the rate of, of, of death uh, and indeed problems with this AstraZeneca um, vaccine, particularly for, for some young women, is very, very low, isn't it? It, it is uh, remarkably low and still, you know, that's 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 the message that's been coming out yesterday. But as, as you alluded to in, in your opening segment, it, you know, the, there's great sensitivity over vaccines and it has been for a number of years. Mm. So this is going to fuel the uncertainty that the some people genuinely have, and of course, give great fuel to, to the anti-vax movement, which can be very damaging to, to the rollout yeah. of this programme. I'm not so concerned about the anti-vax movement as I am about people who just aren't absolutely sure what to do. You know, particularly some young people who might say, well, I'm pretty much low risk anyway of, of, of really getting particularly sick if I've got coronavirus. You know, should I now not actually bother getting the vaccine at all? Because it could be that the risk of me having a problem with it is higher than the risk of me getting COVID and having uh, a serious illness. Uh, absolutely and i think that's why the, there's this rather pragmatic decision to the for, for those age groups where where that risk is is so low that the risk from the vaccine becomes almost equal to, to try and offer the, an alternative vaccine for which there's no association with these problems to, to still encourage those people to to get vaccinated um, not really because of the risk that they have themselves although there's still plenty of young people that do contract covid and, and some go on to suffer um, the terrible fate of long COVID, but also because of the, the sort of herd immunity, this protective effect that vaccines have on other people as well, which is absolutely critical to maintaining sort of this downward trajectory that we see for most of the, the COVID parameters of the last month yeah. or so. But the story itself has been slightly puzzling because it, it popped up, what, a few weeks ago in Norway, didn't it, when people were asking questions about certain uh, connected deaths to uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it was said then, even by the European Medicine Agency, that there was no real connection between the vaccination 
and the blood clots. And so it was kind of kind of went away for a while. And then there was more questions asked about the age limits of people over the age of 60 and 65 in, in some European countries. And that was addressed as well. And now we've sort of come back all the way full circle again to say, well, there could be a connection. I think for a lot of people, that's a bit confusing. It is. I mean, it's the case that these are new vaccines dealing with a new syndrome, which is COVID, for which we still have relatively limited experience. We've never tried vaccinating against this before. And I think the, the thing that has really muddied the water is that the, the, the blood clots that we're talking about are so rare in of themselves that mm. it's very, it was very difficult at the time when the, when the numbers of reports were so low to work out whether this was the number we'd expect to see regardless of vaccination or whether there actually was a contributor you know, contributing factor from the vaccines. Now, as these case numbers have built, mainly because we've been vaccinating far more people as time goes on, I think it's clear that the numbers are now just starting to get above that point where it does seem as if there's more cases than we would expect to see in the general population. And that's what's led to the latest sort of announcement yesterday that, you know, the, the balance of evidence is now swaying towards the fact that being some sort of um, effect of the vaccine and of course then the question becomes well, what do we do about it and that's the announcement yesterday mm. and does it seem to be affecting mostly young women is that what the conclusion is not necessarily that again the numbers are so low that there's not any clear signal. yes there have been more cases in women than there have been men but again there is some evidence that we've actually actually vaccinated more women at the moment particularly in the younger age groups than men because mm. again a lot of our caring responsibilities uh, tend to be taken up by by females and right. so that in the younger age groups that we would have seen more females vaccinated so it's going to take more time before that link becomes clear there's been other associations such as associations with taking the pill or not again there's, there's nothing comes from the data that enables us to, to, to really identify underlying factors that might lead to to this syndrome in people at right. the moment. And I think it's going to be quite difficult to pull it apart. It's such a rare event. Uh, we have no alternative models apart from looking at the, the cases that occur to try and work out what might be happening. Mm. And is it would it be safe to say, if people are wondering, uh, listening to this right now, uh, if they've had one AstraZeneca vaccine um, and they didn't have any side effects or they didn't have any undue um, uh, problems, say, I think it's four days afterwards that you're supposed to be reporting, isn't it? Um, should they get the second one? Uh, yes, that's certainly the advice at the moment. Um, we can't say for sure exactly whether that's true or not, but at the moment it does look as if um, the, the, the the mechanism for these rare blood clots is some sort of odd immune response that's being triggered by the vaccine. So we know that generally a vast, vast majority, a large proportion of the immunity that you get from these vaccines occurs with the first dose. The second dose sort of just boosts and, and cements in that immunity. So I think just you know, talking from our knowledge of how immunity works, it'd be very surprising if there was a new response, a different response to the second dose. So chances are, I think, that if you didn't suffer this event from your first dose, mm. which hardly anyone has, there's no indication to suggest you, you're, you're then going to suffer it on your second dose. Mm. Again, I mean, we have limited data from that because the numbers of second doses are still quite small. But from the immunological mechanism that we're looking at at the moment, I see no reason to suggest why suddenly you'd get it from the second dose, but not the first. Right. Because it's interesting how the uh, vaccines have affected people in different ways. I mean, I've spoken to loads of people who have been affected not at all. Uh, other people who have been affected quite badly. Um, my own daughter, who's, who's quite young, uh, she had it and, and said it was like having COVID all over again because she'd had COVID. It seems to me that people who have had COVID quite badly react worse to the vaccine. We're starting to get, obviously, some data on that now. So it does appear that... So these side effects that I think you're referring to here are the sort of general side effects you get from a lot of vaccines. Yes. Um, they, they do tend... They, they, they do look as if they're perhaps worse with, with the COVID vaccines. For the AZ vaccine, so the Oxford vaccine... Um, the picture emerging is you get a majority of your side effects with the first dose and the second dose is relatively benign. Those side effects are worse in the younger because actually it's, it's a part of the immune system called the innate response mm. that, that's triggering these side effects. And that's the part of the immune system that tends to sort of go a little bit sort of quiet when as you get older, which is one of the reasons why it's difficult to, you know, why, why our immunity starts to fail as we get older. So chances are the older you are, 
the less you're going to get these side effects because you're actually your immune system's not overheating in mm. response to the vaccine. Right. With the Pfizer vaccine, which is a different class, it does look as if actually relatively mild effects with the first dose and actually the worst effects are associated with the second dose. So the other way around for that vaccine, we're still learning as we go along. Yeah. But again, yeah. I think the message is these side effects are nothing compared with COVID itself. I know that when you were, when you were amongst them, I've had one dose of the AstraZeneca jab, didn't feel great for 36 hours. But compared to a full dose of COVID, it's really it's really pretty mild. Yes, sure. But as I say, if you're young and you don't have um, a problem with with perhaps being frightened of getting COVID or not getting it in a very, in a very meaningful way, you know that's the kind of that's a challenge for the medical establishment, isn't it, to convince those people um, that you're actually better off getting it done. Uh, I, yes, I, I guess it could be. Uh, again, still, we need to point to those young people that have had COVID and suffering from it. Long COVID is, is a terrible syndrome that we still have no answers for. So although, yes, you might not actually suffer greatly with a dose of COVID, um, there's still plenty of youngsters that, that have. They felt pretty lousy. And unfortunately, we've got now tens of thousands of people still suffering from, from ongoing effects of having COVID. So I think we still need to make that case that, yes, you're not you're not completely invincible, even though we feel like it when we're, we're young. COVID is a very real um, illness, even for those in their 20s and 30s. Sure. Um, yeah, of course. But there's lots of meaningful illnesses that you can get which can hurt you. Um, but you don't go through your life worrying about getting them, do you? No, we don't. Not until you get them. And then then you tend to, to start to worry about them. And again, for many of those illnesses that can affect those age groups, we don't have preventative measures such as a vaccine. So the difference is we do now have a vaccine against COVID. COVID is quite different from many of the other illnesses, so things like flu that it always gets compared to. It tends not to affect um, the, 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 the younger age groups. It's the very young and the very old. But we saw in 2009 with the swine flu that did actually affect the middle-aged. It caused some really quite nasty infections in those people. Oh, it I did. I, no, I, 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 I remember yeah. it well. Um, but we're told um, this morning as well that we might be reaching some form of 70% um, sort of coverage, if you like, with uh, people with antibodies, both from either having had COVID or from having had the uh, vaccine. What does that mean uh, for the rest of the people that haven't yet had it? And what does it mean for, the, for, for herd immunity in general? Well, to me, I think that's, you know, treat that with great caution still, because actually herd immunity works on the principle that once you've uh, got your immune response, either through having had the infection itself or from something such as a vaccination, it means that you can no longer contract that infectious agent, which obviously means you're not going to get sick yourself, but also it means you wouldn't then pass it on to others. We don't have solid evidence of exactly what the effect is on transmission amongst those vaccinated people. So we may never get, if, if the vaccines don't actually break transmission, then herd immunity is not achievable. So I Yeah, but if, the va- but if the vaccines limit how bad the, uh, uh, the, the COVID is that you get, if you like, for, for, a better, for want of a better way of describing it, then it's less dangerous, isn't it? The whole, the, whole, the whole landscape is less dangerous. It's only less dangerous to those people that have the vaccine. Herd immunity works on, on the basis that actually you don't need everyone protected in order to eradicate the infection. Um, so th- this is something different. I mean, if, if we are unable to break transmission, if the vaccines don't completely prevent it, then the only way of really reducing that risk to a minimum is to have everybody who can possibly be vaccinated be vaccinated, in which case 70% is not the threshold for that. It's as, as high as we can possibly get it. So I think we still need to, 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 to work out exactly what the effect on transmission is before we can have a proper discussion on what whether herd immunity is achievable and what level of vaccination we might need to, to achieve it. But if part of that 70% is people who haven't been vaccinated but have had COVID, therefore they've now got antibodies, surely that counts as being immune, doesn't it? It does, although we're still you know, banding around antibodies as some sort of magic protective marker. We don't know what the actual mechanisms are that protect people from um, COVID. We, we use antibodies because they're a really convenient and measurable factor. So it does look as if they are involved with protection, but we've seen some people that... Um, uh, appear to be protected with with very low antibodies we've seen other people with with high levels of antibodies that that don't have that level of protection so i think there's there's more to it than that uh so it certainly appears the risk of reinfection is lower once you've had um the original infection but of course now we're dealing with new variants with with slight nuances on, on on the protection that offers and we just don't know how long that protection from infection might last so how much Again, of, I, so how much of government policy at the moment is just a shot in the dark then uh, I wouldn't say it's a shot in the dark. It's based on our, our, the knowledge that we've accrued over many, many Yeah, but decades. you've just told me we don't know an awful lot. 
No, we don't. I think we have to be honest with that. But it doesn't mean that either means we do absolutely nothing and suffer the consequences or we try to move out of this. But I think what is clear that vaccines do, on the whole, stop people from becoming seriously sick and dying from COVID. And that's a terrific result compared to where we were last year. But but I think it, what it does mean is that we do have to keep open the option as to, to looking at booster vaccines. We're going to have to monitor um, the protection that, that the vaccines give and how long that lasts. And of course, that will change according to the frequency and the incidence of infection within our population. And that will change over time as well. So I think actually the policy has always been, well, we do, we may have to consider boosters. We may have to consider uh, new formulations of the vaccines that deal with future variants. That's all on the table still. But for yeah. the immediate reopening, it's quite clear that vaccines are breaking that link between infection and illness and death. And that's what we need to be able to move forward, at least in this initial period. Who knows what it might be in three years' time? I would say that anyone who can confidently predict what's going to happen in three years' time only needs to look back at the last 12 months to say that's probably rather fanciful. Well, in three years' time, we all could all be in rack and ruin. We, you know, we could be financially busted, so I mean, we won't have to worry about getting any diseases because we won't be doing anything anyway. Dr Andrew Preston, thank you very much indeed. Microbiologist at the University of Bath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Radio, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Terrible, terrible story to report to you this morning. I want to talk about this uh, in quite a big way. I'd like to get some calls uh, on it as well, because every so often something like this happens. Uh, This has happened in Worthing in West Sussex. A guy uh, who's a care worker is currently fighting for his life. Uh, His name is Alan Wilson, uh, 46 years of age, fighting for his life in a coma in a hospital because he went outside uh, to try and help his 11-year-old son who was being bullied and pushed around uh, by a bunch of local thugs. As a result of him going out and taking on those bullies, uh, he ended up getting beaten very, very severely, uh, and he's now fighting for his life after all sorts of uh, brain injuries, spinal injuries, broken bones, um, a dreadful situation. Let's talk to Chris Hobbs, former Met Police officer, uh, to find out what's going on. Chris, a very good morning to you. Yeah, hi, Mike. I mean, it's a terrible story, this, but it is one that pops up every so often. Um, And I'm sure for an awful lot of people living in Britain, uh, it's a real scourge on their lives, isn't it? Living in places where they're sort of terrorised by local thugs. Some of it might be low-level stuff, you know, people getting eggs chucked at them and that kind of thing. I'm looking at a picture of a car, a Porsche in Primrose Hill, which has had paint thrown over it, you know. Um, And some of this low-level stuff, it's hard for the police to do anything about. But, I mean, is there a problem in this country with antisocial behaviour? I think, without a doubt, there is. I mean, uh, in, I was reading the sum report on this um, before you came on, and also there was a guy up in Northumbria yeah. who tried to deal with some antisocial behaviour, and they burnt his house down. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, and this, of course, uh, the incident you just referred to, 14- and 15-year-olds, mm. uh, was in Worthing. Yeah. I mean, I've got a cousin who lives in Worthing. Yeah. And... Uh, but when you look at some of the other areas, of course, some of the um, the, the sink estates, as they're unkindly described, mm. where, where antisocial behaviour is rife, 
Um, stabbings have continued, haven't they, through, throughout the pandemic. Gang yeah. activity, yes, the police have found it easier to crack down. But now, of course, police are worried what's going to happen as the shackles, the lockdown shackles come off, yeah. whether we're going to see a rise in this sort of violent, appalling behaviour. Yes. And, and these, these individuals, of course, are, are now on bail. Right. <laughs> And many of them, I suppose, Chris, and you'll know this from your days as a, as a police officer, many of these kids are not terrible kids. They're not necessarily career criminals. They're not necessarily in a gang. Some of them are just kind of hanging about on street corners, uh, up to no good, perhaps. But suddenly these things can turn into something bad. Well, that's right. And uh, I really don't know what, what is going on, to be quite honest, Mike. It almost seems as if sections of the of the youth as it were have become desensitized mm. and you, you just need to look at some of the you know the drill music videos yeah. there's a whole violent subculture that the authorities really don't seem that keen or don't seem that keen to acknowledge uh, and it's a violent subculture yeah. and it drags in millions because you've got some of these and i know this isn't drill related but you've got some of these drill rappers who've been locked up in prison yeah. if they produce a track they get millions of views on it right uh, and presumably a, make got, loads of money. It make loads of money, and and the same gangs that have the drill rappers, they there's scoreboards, Mike, where you get so many points for a murder, so many points for a stabbing, mm. and and this is part and parcel, if no people may deny, of youth culture. Yes. So when something like this happens, perhaps we shouldn't be that surprised because underlying it, as I say, it, it really is a very very bad scene out there yeah. in terms of of what our young people see on a daily basis on their laptops and computers. Yes. And, I mean, I'm assuming not being at school for the best part of the year hasn't really helped either. But what what can the police do? Because I'm asking people to tell me their individual stories, and I'm sure I'll get loads of them today from people who will say, oh, I complained about so-and-so, nothing really happened. I mean, are the police kind of um, hands tied on this? I think it's more a case of... um, It's not so much hands being tied. I think it's more a case of, of... not enough police to do all that's required of them. Um, what we really need, if, as from policing point of view, is a return to community policing, where you've got police officers out and about and get to know their local areas and the local troublemakers, keep an eye on things and take action where necessary. Mm. But I'm afraid bringing back our police numbers to where they were in 2010 before the cuts isn't going to hack it. It's not going to do it because the demands on the police are increasing increasing massively. I mean, mental health, for example, Mike, as you know. Yes. You know, huge demands on, on the police there. Um, we've got this now, this business about the, the girls and so on in schools. Now, that will lead to an increased workload for police, justifiably. But there's not enough police officers. We've still got one of the lowest police per population ratios in Europe. We need to get police officers out on the streets in the communities. We're not going to do that even with the extra 20,000 police officers that we've been promised. No, exactly right. Chris, thanks. We'll talk about this some more, I'm sure, but we're out of time for now. Uh, former Met Police officer there talking about resources being the problem uh, and the police not having enough capability to deal with all of this. What is often beginning to be low-level crime, but then rises very, very highly into a terrible situation like where this father, Alan Wilson, uh, is fighting for his life in hospital. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time now to go across to San Diego to catch up with LaDonna Harvey in the US of A, the breakfast host, of course, of the KOGO uh, show, uh, radio show over there in Southern California. LaDonna, very good morning to you. Yeah, and very good morning to you. I like the way you said California. Do you, you like that? The RN. Yes, well, I do like to do that, you know, because, you know, I'm an old school, as I've been told already once this morning, person, and I, I, and I apparently pronounce things in a very old-fashioned way. Least surprising story of the day for me this morning, it has to be said, uh, Tiger speeding caused his car crash. Right. I mean, really? Right. You, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Yeah, I think you're going to knock us all over with a feather. Uh, They came out finally and did a a news conference. They had said that they couldn't release the information uh, without his permission, which I I still, and he reiterated it in the uh, press conference. And I'm like, you know, I've been working in news for a long time, and we find out the causes of crashes all the time from police. Mm. So I I don't believe you. 
And <laughs> far, be it, far be it for me to call the L.A. County Sheriff a liar, but I'm just going to do it. You're I think you can. I think and, that's fair enough. And also, why, and, and, uh, in what world, if you crash a car, roll it, you might find yourself in a state of uh, complete and utter bewilderment as a result of possible intake of something beforehand when you've done 86 in a 45, how is it that you don't get tested for anything? Well, that's a really good question because they test people all the time yeah. who are involved in crashes. Um, now, now here's where what I don't know. If it's just him as the driver and he's crashed and no one else is hurt, I, you know, I don't know if that qualifies for, for taking somebody's blood you know, without their permission. Mm. Uh, but but it's, it's very odd to me that they didn't test them. I mean, I just, you know, I wonder what would happen if I was in a car. Well, um, I don't think you, know, you have to wonder. For instance. I, I don't think you have to wonder for very long. If you do 86 down there, I mean, if, if it was uh, if it was a good idea and I was in still running newspapers, which, of course, they don't let me do anymore, I'd be getting somebody to drive yeah. down that road at 86, roll a car and see what happens. Well, you know, I think that you should be able to tell people to risk their lives completely just yeah. for the story. Absolutely. Listen, I got sent to a war zone when I was a reporter. You know, and nobody said, don't worry, you'll be absolutely fine. And when I got home, they told me they'd forgotten to insure me. So if I had been killed, oh. my family wouldn't have even got any money. Oh, that's fantastic. Isn't that great? I mean, that's old school for you. That's why, that's, yeah, why sure people don't, that's why people don't do it anymore. <laughs> so um, I don't blame them. So Tiger, has Tiger got himself a chauffeur yet? Uh, I don't know, but at this point, I think I would. He's got very bad luck with SUVs. He really doesn't uh, doesn't do well. Fire hydrants, you know, bends, all sorts of things. Nine irons. Anyway, that's enough about him. Let's talk a bit about the latest in the the biggest court case that's been happening uh, so far, uh, probably this decade, I suppose you would say. Uh, George Floyd's death, the um, uh, the, the murder trial uh, of Mr. Chauvin. Um, how's that going? Well, uh, you know, it's 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 the prosecution. So so you're hearing everything that you can hear. The the prosecution is throwing everything at him that they can possibly do, because, of course, they want to convict him. Um, We have not really heard from the defense. So, you know, we're in the very first part of this trial. And that's really important to keep in mind, because, yes, some of the evidence does appear to be quite damning. I mean, you know, they had a a use of force specialist from the uh, LAPD come in and testify and said, yeah, that's just that's just not how you do it. Mm. Right. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, I think we all know that. Yes. But I mean, I was listening to somebody describing it um, uh, last night, saying that it's it is quite unusual, though, for the Minneapolis, the, the Minnesota police to kind of distance themselves from this guy, because normally there's a little bit of, you know, attempt tempting to sort of, you know, show some kind of solidarity in the police force. But with this guy it doesn't seem to be happening. Right. It doesn't. And and I think that's that's been a key issue in American policing for a while mm. is that. You know, any time a police officer, there's even a whiff that they've done something wrong, there's this protective barrier that goes up in front of them. And, you know, chances are that if if they are prosecuted for committing a crime under the color of authority, which is, to me, one of the worst things that you can do, um, you know, if if they do go on trial, it's very rare that a police officer is actually convicted of committing a crime in uniform. Um, This has been an issue in American policing. We've seen it happen here in San Diego. We've seen it happen around the country. And it's got to stop. Mm. You cannot protect the bad guys and think that you're doing something good for the good guys. You're not. No, exactly right. So it's going to play out for a much longer period of time, I guess. And we're looking at weeks, I think, I suppose, or possibly even months, right? Um, probably weeks is my guess. I, right. I wouldn't expect this to go on for months, but definitely weeks. And, you know, when the when the defense takes the, the stand or when the defense has its shot, um, it's going to try to tear down every bit of evidence that's been presented so far. Yes. Um, you know, we did see we did see that with the cross examination a little bit, uh, with one guy saying that he thought George Floyd said that he was he was on drugs, and then when he listened to the whole tape there in the court, he was like, "Oh well, no, it sounds like he's saying I'm not on drugs." Um, you know, it's so eyewitness testimony can be so difficult uh because you you remember things differently sure well i think that's absolutely right and just because somebody said something and somebody heard them say that thing it doesn't mean that that thing is true either 
Well, it doesn't. And if you and if you misunderstand, uh, you know, you've got it in your head that this is what you heard, but it might not be what you heard, which mm. is exactly what happened on the stand yesterday. Absolutely right. Let's talk about Piers Morgan. Um, he went on Tucker Carlson's show at the start of this week. Uh, uh, behind a paywall, I think it was, um, was uh, the, the Fox Nation show. Um, how's that gone down? I, you know, I think that, that people have made up their mind about Piers Morgan. They either love him or they hate him. Right. And I don't think that, I don't think that it's going to change anybody's mind. Mm. Um, you know, you can, you can love him or I don't particularly love him, uh, but I don't particularly hate him either. But that's because you're quite a well-balanced individual, Adonna. Well, I try to be. Yeah. Um, you contrary know, thing, contrary to popular belief. Hired, I know. If you're hired to give your opinion, then that is your opinion. Mm. Why would you fire somebody for giving an opinion that somebody else doesn't like? Well, I'm sorry you don't like it, but it's still mine. Right. And that's why I'm paid. Yes, and I'm sorry that I've got an opinion that you don't agree with or that somebody else doesn't agree with and that you want me to apologize for having, despite the fact that you hired me to have it. I do really admire him for not backing down. Yes. Um, you know, he, he believes what he believes, and he's totally okay with it. Usually there's a big apology tour where a bunch of people go, it's not enough. Right. And, you know, you just end up looking like a, a dish rat. Well, look what happened to Sharon Osbourne. You know, she, she sort of threw herself on the mercy of the court, and then she got kicked out anyway. She sure did. And there is there once you have offended, and that apparently is the worst thing that you can do in life. Yes, there is no going back on it. There no. is no amount of apology that will ever untarnish your image. Mm. But I think he takes the view, and I'm I'm one of those who who, who really does like him a lot. He's a friend of mine. Um, he takes the view that being called a racist is not something that you can simply ad- ignore, that you can't simply just go, oh, well, you think I'm a racist, that's fine, I'll just go and stand over there. Uh, he believes that to be a terrible slur on his character, and I think he's quite right to think that, because he isn't a racist, and, and to be to be tainted as that is horrendous. Well, and people throw that word around as though, you know, if, if your criticism of someone, if they are someone of color, yeah. has something to do with their color rather than their character. Mm. Uh, it, he doesn't like Meghan Markle's character. Right. And that is very different from him saying, I don't, I don't think that he's ever mentioned her race. Well, of course he hasn't. <laughs> no, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she hasn't taken offence at the racism that's been used to criticise her. I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous. Right. right. Unbelievable. Well, it's, listen, it's um, a little over the top. It really is. I'm waiting for her response because at some point or other, presumably, she's going to have to sue him uh, for making falsehoods about her, um, despite the fact that she so far hasn't done that because she sues everybody else when they do anything that she doesn't like. Yes, she sure does. Mm. And she wins. Yeah, well, I know. I know. Because, well, it, there's all those racist judges in Britain. They keep making, you know, giving her wins in the, in the courts. It's extraordinary. But listen, LaDonna, enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, we'll come back to you same time next week. LaDonna Harvey, KOGO's very own breakfast show host in San Diego, California, as I said. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.